Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew 6, verse 9. Uh, we're concluding our, ser- our series today, The Man Who Changed Everything, looking at the impact Jesus made in our world, both for believers and unbelievers. And the story goes that there was a Scottish Presbyterian church that had called a new pastor. And this was a younger guy. He'd been in academia up until now. He'd always been, you know, getting yet another PhD. So this was his first actual pastorate. And he loved the mystery and the ritual of the liturgy of the church. He loved to wear his clerical robes. He loved to pray these long, lofty prayers with these exalted-sounding theological words in them. And one day he was up there holding forth before his congregation with his head bowed and suddenly he felt a little tug on the coat of his vestment and he turned around and there stood this elderly, tiny little Scottish woman in a choir robe and she looked up at him and she said, I'll just call him father and ask him for something. And I think we all agree, don't we? That we ought to lose all the pretension when we come before God. Even the snootiest person in here, I don't want to point to who that person is, but even the snootiest person in here would have to say, we need to recognize that he's God and we're not, and we need to come before him in humility, not trying to impress anyone with the way we pray. But where did we get this idea that we can come to God, call him Father, and ask him for something? I mean, after all, none of the major world religions teaches that God is accessible, In all the major world religions, even in some branches of Christianity, there's this idea that you have to be part of the special class in order to get access to God. And even if you're in that special class, then you have to go through certain steps, certain rituals to make yourself worthy. Nobody can just barge into the throne room, can they? And yet we as Christians, I bet everybody in this room who's a believer in Christ would say, yeah, I can pray to God if I'm driving down the highway. I can pray to God when I'm laying flat on my back at night and can't go to sleep. I can pray to God when I'm stark naked in the shower and he hears my prayer. Anytime I have a need, anytime I have a question, anytime I have a a fear or a concern, I can bring it before the Lord. I can barge into the throne room of the King of heaven and he hears me. But where do we get that idea? Doesn't it seem inappropriate? Where do we get the idea that we can dare to call God our Father? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus. Jesus changed everything, and the thing He changed more than anything else is the way we relate to God, the way we think about God. Even I'm going to make the argument today, even among, among people who don't believe in Him, their opinion, their idea of who God is has changed because of Jesus' life. So let's pick up with Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I'm not going to do an expository message like I usually do. We're just going to start with verse 9, then we're going to talk about this idea of God as Father. This is the beginning of of the Lord's Prayer. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who's heard that before? Anybody? Yeah. Jesus said to pray, our Father. Now, many of you have probably heard what I'm about to say. When Jesus used the word Father in referring to God, he used a particular Aramaic word. Aramaic was the language Jesus and the Jews of that time spoke. And the word he used was pronounced Abba, A-B-B-A, not the Swedish pop band from the 70s, but Abba, a word that was very simple, very easy to say, a word that a little child would call his dad. Which, by the way, ladies, have you ever thought about the injustice of it all, that When a child comes into the world, you have done all of the work. 
You've carried this child inside of your womb for 40 weeks. You have given birth through a process that I, I am told is extremely painful and certainly is, is hard work. That's why they call it labor. And then you nurse this child. You wake up with this child in the middle of the night. You change most of the diapers. The, the father is, is useless. He's basically handing out cigars and congratulating himself on being a great guy. And you're doing the work. The child would die if not for you. And after all of that, months later, the child opens its mouth and speaks its first intelligible word, and it's what? Dada? That's just not right. I mean, I was excited when it happened, but I, even I knew, wow, I don't deserve this. And that's the word Jesus uses here. Basically, the Aramaic version of Dada is Abba. And that's what he told us to call God in heaven. Someone that close, that intimate, we're supposed to call him Father. Now, it's interesting when you study the Scripture and you see the times Jesus uses that terms, the pronouns tend to change. So when he's talking about us and our need for salvation and our sin, he'll say, your Father, because Jesus was sinless and he didn't need a Savior. But when he's talking about his own sonship and his own mission to save the world, he'll say, my Father, because only he was the Son of God, only he could save. But then here at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, he says, our Father. And isn't it great to think about that right here in this room, we've got all kinds of people. We've got people who are um, grandparents and great-grandparents, and we've got people who, who are they're teenagers. We've got people who are, are preteens all the way. We've got the full range of ages. We've got people who are pretty well off financially and others who are struggling. We've got people who were really excited about the election a couple weeks ago, and we've got people in here who are terrified about what happened in the election. And if you go outside this building and you go down the street, you'll find other kinds of churches where Christ's name is being proclaimed and praised in a language other than ours. We wouldn't understand what they're saying, and they wouldn't understand ours. And you go to an African-American church, and they preach longer than we do. Don't complain if we get out at about 1210, okay? Talk to your African-American brothers and sisters. They'll think you're lucky. You can go down to the Catholic church, and they're praising Jesus in a very different way through an ancient mass that's nothing like the way we worship him. And you go to a Seventh-day Adventist church, and they're worshiping on Saturday, and they think we're crazy for having our Sabbath on Sunday. And you know what we have in common? Not much, except that we've all been adopted into one family by one loving Father. Isn't that amazing? And I'll tell you something else that's amazing. Probably there are people in this room, probably there are many people in this room who would say, you know, my own father and I just didn't have a good relationship. In fact, my own father, maybe your, your father may have been absent from your life. Your father may have hurt you deeply in a way that you'll never be able to overcome. That song we sang is true. He, He is a good, good Father. He is the Father that you've always wanted and always needed. He's the Father to my children that I could never be. He's the Father to you that you've always, always wanted. John Ortberg, in his book, Who Is This Man?, wrote these words. He said, In the ancient world, the, the spiritual realm was understood to be real but not morally transcendent. Aristotle said it would be eccentric to claim to love Zeus. No one wrote songs that said, Zeus loves me, this I know, for the Iliad tells me so. 
Adherents of Eastern religions generally did not believe in a personal God at all. So whenever someone says, I believe in a God of love, we hear the echo of the Nazarene. Have you ever heard someone say that? Someone who's not a believer, not a religious person, and they'll say, well, I don't know much about God, but I believe in a God of love. I've heard that many, many times. Where did they get that idea from? People 2,000 years ago wouldn't have said they believe in a God of love. That was an idea that didn't even resonate. They got this idea from Jesus. Jesus is the one who told us that God is a God of love. After all, his most famous statement, the most famous thing Jesus ever said, at least most famous in our culture, the one that every person who's ever watched a football game knows, is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Now, we can be skeptical sometimes of statements like that. I mean, after all, politicians will say all the time, I love the American people, and we say, sure you do. A CEO could say, I love the employees in my company, but what do you think would happen if the cleaning lady from his office building showed up at his house uninvited that night and said, I'd like to join you for dinner? We'd see how much he loves his employees then. So is Jesus just another grandiose person who's saying these eloquent words, sentimental words, just to increase the size of his following, to curry favor with the common man. Well, let's look at how Jesus treated people, individual people. Because the amazing thing about Jesus in the Gospels is there's all these stories of times when he runs into a variety of folks. And I'll give you four quick examples. There was a day when all these children showed up. Jesus is walking and suddenly all these children are gathered around and parents have brought their little ones wanting this famous rabbi to bless them. And the disciples, of course, want to hustle those kids out of the way. Get these urchins out of the way. The master doesn't have time for this. And Jesus was ticked off at his disciples. Scriptures say he was indignant. That's ancient words for ticked off. So, and he, he said, let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven belongs to them, he said. Or or how about the time when he met a rich young man who had everything in life except salvation, and this man came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew this man's heart because he was Jesus. And he knew the one thing standing between this man and grace was his own addiction to wealth, his own idolatry toward money. And he said, what you need to do, sir, is sell all that you have and give it all to the poor and then come follow me. And the man went away sad because... He couldn't walk away from his true treasure, which was wealth. And here's the cool thing. Jesus, in Mark, it says Jesus looked at him, Mark 10, 21, looked at him and loved him. How many many times does someone reject you and you love them in return? That's how Jesus felt about this man. Or how about Zacchaeus? We know the story, right? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. The song should say he was a crooked little man because he was. Climbed up a tree to see Jesus up there in his beautiful garments, his his wonderful stylish clothes that he had bought with money that he had skimmed from his neighbors, fleecing them for the sake, for the profit of the Roman Empire. And all of his neighbors hated him, and he didn't care because he had the money to thumb his nose at them. Up in that tree, looking down at Jesus, thinking to himself, "I, I may have everything I want, but I hate myself just as much as those neighbors do. And Jesus looked up into the tree, and where everybody else would have laughed and mocked him, he said, come on down, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And once he was inside those doors, he said, salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a child of Abraham. 
Or how about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Jesus is traveling through Samaria. You know how the Samaritans felt about Jews, right? They hated them, just like the Jews hated them right back. And the disciples go off to find food, and Jesus meets this woman who comes out to the well to draw water. In the heat of the day, no one does that. No one comes in the heat of the day. You go in the morning when it's cool, and that way you can be around the other women of the village. Ah, but unless, unless the other women of the village won't have anything to do with you, because you've been married to five different men in town, probably some of their own husbands, and the guy you're, you're with now you're shacking up with. I mean, no one wants anything to do with you. And, and Jesus looks at her and knows her immediately, knows immediately what's going on in her life. Not only is she of a hated race, but she has a lifestyle and a, and a, and a, a standing in society that would make most of us just walk away. And Jesus instead spends time with her and ends up telling her things that no other Jew has found out. He says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. And he changes her life forever. She becomes the one that leads her entire village to salvation. See, here's the thing. Paul Johnson, the historian, wrote it this way. He said, his life was a series of public meetings punctuated by casual encounters that turned into significant events. Jesus not only encouraged these encounters, he treasured them. There is nothing like them in the entire literature of the ancient world, sacred or secular. We don't read these kinds of stories about Aristotle or Socrates or Plato or any of the Caesars or, for that matter, Muhammad or Buddha or any of the other great teachers of the world religions. Only Jesus. Jesus was not some um, moral genius who kept himself aloof from the crowds and emerged every once in a while to impart some wisdom. He liked people. Isn't that amazing? Jesus liked to be around people, people like you and me. And the rougher around the edges, the more he liked them. That's who he is. On the day Jesus died, at the very moment he breathed his last, the curtain in the temple was torn in two pieces by an invisible hand. And this was no ordinary piece of fabric. This was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. No one could go in there on penalty of death. Do you know that to this day, Orthodox Jews believe that the presence of Almighty God still dwells in the Holy of Holies? Even though the temple hasn't stood for 2,000 years, when I was privileged to go to Israel a couple of years ago, we went up to the place where the temple mount was. And there's a sign on the on the on the gate before you walk into that place. And it's, it's a message from the Jewish Orthodox rabbinate. It says, please do not go in because you may accidentally stumble into the Holy of Holies and be struck dead. Jesus tore that, Jesus' death tore that curtain. There's no more, there's no more veil between us and God. Jesus, in, in tearing down that barrier, was saying, from now on, I don't care who you are or what you have done or what you think of yourself. You have access through me to the Father. A generation later, his follower Paul would write words that confirm this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor female. There's neither, there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. That's, that's an egalitarian statement like nothing the ancient world had ever seen. It was revolutionary. 1,700 years later, a guy named Thomas Jefferson, perhaps you've heard of him, wrote words that you're probably familiar with. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Jefferson, if you study his life, you'll know he was by no means an Orthodox Christian, but he was certainly someone who had studied the life of Jesus and, and esteemed his teaching. He got the idea of the equality of all men, all people from Jesus himself. 
So when you think about it, this is an amazing thought to think. You don't even have to be a believer in Jesus in order to be benefit from his life. If you live in America or a country that has been influenced by American freedom, you owe your freedom to the teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll go further than that. If you are an atheist who enjoys making fun of Scripture, who enjoys uh, jabbing at believers, who enjoys saying blasphemous things just to get under the skin of followers of Jesus, the very reason you can say those things without being thrown into jail or stoned to death is because Jesus taught us that everyone has the right to do what they want to do. Everyone has the right to approach God on their own. You owe your rights to Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thought? Perhaps you've heard the name Fred Phelps. Fred Phelps was the founder of Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, a church of about 40 people, roughly, mostly members of his own extended family. You would think if you watch the news that it's this massive church. It's just a small little group of, of mostly inbred people. I'm sorry, it's true. Um, they love to get publicity for themselves. They love to show up at the funerals of uh, killed servicemen, servicemen who've been killed in the, lives, in the line of duty and carry their signs on which they proclaim the people they think God hates. Even the name of their website is too hateful for me to say. And I've got a special reason to dislike these people. For eight and a half years before God brought me here, I was pastor of Westbury Baptist Church. You want to guess how many times we were confused for Westboro Baptist Church? You want to guess how many times I got emails or, or looked on our church Facebook page or, or looked on Google and saw a review from someone who said, don't go to this church, they're awful people, they hate everyone. And I'd have to write to those folks and say, you know, I feel the same way about that church as you do, but we're someone different. I read when Fred Phelps passed away a few years ago that at that moment when he died, he, he had already been excommunicated by his own church, his own family members. And I thought how, how perfectly appropriate that someone who founded a church based on hate would himself be spit up and uh, chewed up and spit out by the same hateful machinery he had constructed. God works things out that way sometimes. And yet, and yet at the same time, I think about how easy it is for me to see the difference between First Baptist Conroe and a place like Westboro. But I also realize that a lot of the folks out there don't see a difference at all. They see us all the same. And part of that is just the way our media works today. Uh, you know, let's face it, it's not that there's any conspiracy, but the media makes money on ratings, and, and you get better ratings from someone like Fred Phelps being interviewed than someone like you or me or an ordinary person who's just struggling to follow Christ as best we can. But we can't blame CNN for this. We're the ambassadors of Jesus, not anyone else. We're the ones given the ministry of reconciliation. And if the world doesn't see, if our society doesn't see that our God is a God of love, that our God is a good, good father who wants to adopt them into his family, it's our fault. It's on us. And let's be honest. Let's tell the truth. The truth is that somewhere along the way, I don't know when it happened, somewhere along the way, we decided for some reason that feeling anger and disgust at the sins of people outside the church is the same thing as righteousness. We decided somewhere along the way that denouncing unbelievers is the same thing as being a bold witness for Christ. And neither one of those things are even close to the truth. And I don't know why it is that we feel so compelled to argue with people outside the faith about their moral stances. 
I don't know why we get so angry when people who don't believe in the Bible act like people who don't believe in the Bible. When God never called us to try to change them, never called them to try to convince them to act differently. Sometimes I think we as Christians would rather them pretend to believe like we do because it'd make us feel better. We don't really care about their souls. We just are tired of being offended at their lifestyles. We're not called to change their lifestyles. We're called to bring them to Jesus. Guess what happens then? He changes their lifestyles. We catch them and He cleans them. That's the way it works. We are called to make disciples. And how do we do that? We don't do it by arguing with people on social media. We don't do it by carrying signs that proclaim who God hates. We do it the way Jesus did. Jesus liked being around people. And the rougher around the edges, the better. Jesus had time for those people. He, he spent time with them. He said to them the things they needed to hear. We do it by spending time with people who we may naturally think are beneath us, like those little children Jesus blessed. We, we do it by spending time with people whose lifestyles we find offensive, like Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector. We do it by spending time with people we think are probably going to walk away from us and reject our faith, just like the rich young ruler. We do it by spending time with people the world despises who won't help us socially or economically at all, like the woman at the well and sharing with them the love of God. I read once not long ago that one in five Americans doesn't have a relationship with even one Christian. One in five Americans don't know any Christians personally, and that ought to make us weep. How about you? How many people are in your life, neighbors, acquaintances, coworkers, your kids' friends and their parents? How many of those people have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? How many of those people would you say, I don't honestly know. It's never come up in our conversation. How many of those people have you never even taken the time to find out their names? This is a good time, folks. This this time of year is a perfect time to, to, to ask God to set our minds upon those who He is seeking. For us to see them through His eyes. For us to see them as people that He loves. His lost children who need to come home. Who need to be at the table with us. This this Thursday, if if there was a, a key member of your family who wasn't there, wouldn't you miss them? Wouldn't you say, hey, let's call them and find out where they are. There are members of God's family that, that are still out there that haven't come to the table. And we ought to be zealous about bringing them in any way that we can. That means... Writing them an encouraging note. That means asking them out to lunch. It means calling them up on the phone. It means coming, taking them to the side and saying, I know you're going through tough things right now. Can I pray for you? You know, just that simple question, can I pray for you, can open a door to a new kind of relationship with someone that draws them into a relationship with Christ. Ask them. This is my challenge for you. Ask, Ask the Lord to show you who you should be focusing on Pray for those people and look for opportunities this week, at least one opportunity to share Christ's love with them. Now, there's probably some people here, at least I hope there are, 
some people here who don't have that kind of relationship with God where you could honestly say, he is my father and I'm his child. I hope there are people here. I hope we've been inviting those folks. I hope those folks feel, feel welcome to come in and, and just try out Jesus for a while and hear about him. And if you're one of those people and you're saying to yourself, well, how do I know? How do I know that he wants to be my father? And here's what I say. Think again about that idea of Thanksgiving dinner. Imagine you're sitting around the table this next Thursday. Doorbell rings. Turkey's already on the table. We're about to say the prayer and, and dig in. Doorbell rings, and it's a neighbor who says, you know, I don't have anyone to eat Thanksgiving dinner with. I don't have anything in my house. Can I come in and take your spot? I, I, think, I think Taco Bell's open. You can go get yourself some burritos or something, but can I have your spot at the table? I don't think any of us would do that, would we? We'd slam the door in their face. I would. I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. See, we know that God wants to be our Father because Jesus, Jesus gave up His place at the table for us. He's the only true Son of God. He's the only one who deserves a seat at that table. And He walked to the door and He invited us in, not just for a meal, not just for an afternoon, but forever. He gave up heaven and experienced hell so we could have eternal life. He gave up his sonship so we could be adopted. He gave up his righteousness and traded it for our failure and sin and condemnation. We know, we know he wants to be our father because he did that for us. He paid the highest price. He alone can rescue. 